the blood. I, I, hope that's your, I hope that's your theme tonight. Find, would you, the book of Acts, uh, and we'll begin our journey through this. I, I don't know how long it will take. I imagine it will take a while. There's a, uh, there's a lot to glean from this book. There was a movie that came out a number of years ago. I don't even know how old it is now. The movie was uh, National Treasure. Do you remember that movie? It starred Nicolas Cage. When that movie came out, it was sold with a book. And um, we wanted to see the movie. Uh, you know, it was National Treasure, had a lot of history involved in it. And we wanted to see the movie. My kids really wanted to see the movie. But it came with a book. And the book was 100 Things to Know About American History. And we, our two oldest girls uh, were... Excuse me, they were old enough to be involved in this. So I told them, we'll buy it, but we're not watching it till, till Bethany and Kelly read the book. So they had to read the book, 100 Things to Know About American History, then we'll watch that movie. So they did. 100 Things You Need to Know About American History. May I ask you a question? Are there more than 100 things to know about American history? Are there more than 100 things? Well, that, that book, that little book, it just encapsulated some highlights of what's happened in our nation since the late 1700s. When you come to the book of Acts, don't approach it like it is, uh, like it's the tell-all of the first century church in the city of Jerusalem and beyond. Really what you have in the book of Acts is an abbreviated record of the church's first three decades or so. Acts from beginning to end covers about the first 30 years of the church. Um, after, I believe, Jesus started the church with the 12 disciples. I don't believe the day of Pentecost. We need to say this up front, and it's not a break off of fellowship here. I don't believe that the church started on the day of Pentecost. I believe the Bible teaches that the church was empowered by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, I believe Jesus started the church with the 12 apostles. The Bible says that repeatedly, that they are the foundation on which he built the church. And so uh, you have in the book of Acts this 30-year capsule, and I think it's the best book on church history that you can own. Now, you don't have to go out and buy a book on church history. You got the best one you have, and that is the book of Acts, and it came with all the other books in your Bible. It's a wonderful book to get to know where we came from. It is not full, it's not a full history of the period that it covers. There are a lot of things that happened in that first century church in those first 30 years or so that are not told in the book of Acts. Do you remember what John said at the end of his epistle, or at the end of his gospel, rather, about Jesus? He said, if we wrote everything that Jesus said and did in the 30 years that he was here, the world couldn't contain those books. That's kind of true with the first 30 years of the church. What you're getting are the highlights of what happened in the beginning of the church, in the beginning of the church age. You learn some things in there. You find incidents that reveal the tendencies of the church leaders in that day principles that can be used to govern your life, govern the church, some of the things that the, the first century church struggled with, you find in the book of Acts. I think the title is probably misleading. Um, the title says the Acts of the Apostles. 
And so if you're new to the Bible, you're probably going to open up and you're going to think to yourself, well, um, we're going to learn about the 11 apostles that were left after Judas died. You're really not. You're going to get some things about Peter, a lot of things about Paul, and just a few things about John. You're not really getting the acts of all the apostles. Maybe a better title would have been the acts of some of the apostles. Now, I'm not attacking your, your Bible tonight because the Holy Spirit didn't title the book. Man titled the book, so don't be mad. John Phillips said this, the book might best be titled The Acts of the Holy Spirit. I thought that was great because what you get in the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit coming into the church there at Jerusalem and then incredible things happening for the next 30 years. It's a wonderful book. Christians today ought to associate themselves with this book. I'm calling our series The First Pages of Church History. Um, there that It's the opening story of, of this, and I, I think tonight what we're going to do is just look at an overview of the book of Acts. And so uh, our study tonight, welcome to the book of Acts. Um, we're just introducing, we're just introducing this book to us. You have the opening chapters here of church history. The church that Jesus started with his disciples and the stories that we're going to read in this book, they're woven into the books that succeeded, like, like Paul's letter to the Romans or the Corinthians or certainly his book to Ephesus and the Philippians. When you come to Acts chapter 16, you have the, the founding of the Philippian church so that when Paul writes the epistle to the Philippians, that jailer was probably part of the first group to hear uh, that jailer in Acts 16, probably the first group to hear the book of Philippians. Lydia was probably in that congregation that read Paul's epistle to the Philippian church. So this book is woven into the rest of them. And you're going to read things about the temptations and the personality clashes that come into the church. Their differences in cultures. Some incredible revivals. Can you imagine... Can you imagine starting your church with about 120 people? I don't know how many people are in here tonight. Can you imagine starting the day with 120 people? And at the end of the day, your church membership is 3,120. That's crazy. And then a little while later, four more thousand people get saved. And they're added to that church in Jerusalem. There are incredible revivals taking place and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit drawing lost people to himself. There are terrible persecutions recorded in the book of Acts. So it's a good book to study. So we're going to introduce this book tonight, try to take a bird's eye view of things. But to get us, to get us jump started, let's see how the Holy Spirit had Luke open the book. Acts chapter 1, verse number 1. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, 
but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. We'll stop our reading for the introduction there. Uh, we'll be going to, to other places in, in this book tonight or other scriptures, but let's stop our reading there. Coming to the book of Acts, it's hard to do it, but I'd like you to come to it for the first time tonight. Just you're coming to it for the first time. Let's introduce ourselves, or let the book rather introduce itself uh, to us, and let's start with the setting of the book. We'll start first of all with the setting of the book, and I, I want to set the book by this, the author of the book and the date it was written. This is really more of a Bible study than a sermon tonight. Can we approach it like that? So let's start with the setting, its author and its date. And look at it, first of all, by saying this. There's two books and one author. Two books by one author. And the first book by this author is mentioned in verse number one. Let me pause and say that among, among Bible scholars, there's very little doubt that Luke is the author of the book of Acts. That's almost, it's almost not contested that Luke wrote this book. His name's not there, but there are hints that tell us that Luke wrote this gospel. In fact, did you know that Luke's name is not in the gospel of Luke either? But both of these, both of these books are attributed to him. If you look at Acts chapter 1 and verse number 1, you meet this man named Theophilus. If you go back to the gospel of Luke, it's um, the third gospel, and you look at chapter 1 and verse 3... It says there, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. There he is again, this, this unknown believer named Theophilus. You know what his name means? You say, Pastor, how do you know he's a, how do you know he's a believer? How do you know Theophilus, Theophilus is a believer? His name means friend or lover of God. Friend or lover of God. The early church fathers uh, before 150 AD all attributed the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts to this man named Luke. Theophilus is an unknown believer, but by the way Luke talks to him in Luke chapter 1, he probably was a Roman official. It says most excellent Theophilus. He's paying tribute, he's paying honor to someone. The scripture says we're to give honor to whom honor is due. And he's, he's calling him by a title, most excellent Theophilus. Hold your finger there and look at Acts chapter 24. And or, Well, you don't have to, but, but I'm going to read from Acts 24 verse number 3. Paul is talking, <coughs> excuse me, uh, uh, Turtleus, rather, is talking, and he's accusing Paul of some things. But look, how, look what he says in, in Acts 24.3. We accept it always in, in all places, most noble Felix. Now, we know Felix was a high-ranking Roman official. And he's called their most noble, most noble Felix. Um, chapter 26 and verse number 25. Just dawned on me, I hope this is the right verse. Yeah, but he said, I, Paul's talking here. He says, but I am not mad, most noble Festus. We know Festus was a high-ranking Roman official. 
So you have these titles being given to them. So most likely this guy Theophilus that's receiving the book of Acts uh, from, from Luke, most likely a saved Roman official. And he says, the former treatise, verse number one, the former treatise have I made. He's talking about his gospel. Luke, the gospel, was written before the book of, before the book of Acts. So Luke's first writing is the gospel and if you compare the book of Luke to the book of Acts, you'll find at least 50 phrases that are similar and unique to those two books. That's one of the reasons that I believe, for example, Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. There are things that he says in the book of Hebrews that just match up with other letters that he wrote. So when you look at the book of Luke and you look at the book of Acts, there are things there that... There are things there that are very similar, and it's an evidence that you have two books by one author. That's the first point. The second point is this. He is one unnamed author for the two books. Neither in Luke nor in Acts is Luke given by name. He's only mentioned four times in Scripture, Luke is. Either by name or by title, he's mentioned four times. He's called Luke twice. He's called Lucas once, and then one time Paul refers to him as the beloved physician. <clears throat> he traveled with Paul. In fact, we'll see that in the book of Luke later. We're going to notice that he traveled a lot with Paul. And when you come to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 11, you find out most likely he was with Paul when Paul was, when Paul was martyred. Uh, this man, Luke, he's revealed... Uh, as an eyewitness to many of these events in the book of Acts. There are some, and, and watch for this, would you, when you're reading through Acts or as we make our way through it, watch for those times that the author uses the word we. And he'll say repeatedly. I wrote down some examples. In chapter 16, verses 10 through 17, Luke uses the word we often. Chapter 20, verses 5 through 21 Chapter 27, verse number 1 through 28, 16. He uses the word we a lot. When he's using the word we, Luke is telling you, I was with Paul during these times. I saw these things happen. Then there are those passages where he is apparently writing by uh, things that have been told to him, certainly inspired by the Holy Spirit. I'm not taking that away. But there are just certain times when he says we, and then there are other times when he says they, Paul and his missionary team, they were over here. I was over here. They were over there. But then they get together a few times and he'll say things like we. I wouldn't let the fact that Luke is not named in this book, not named in his, not named in his, his gospel, don't let that throw you. He's the author of the book. Um, Hebrews doesn't have a named author. At the end of the day, the Holy Spirit wrote every book of the Bible. I think that he used this man named Luke to write that down for the Gospel of Luke and also for this one. All scripture is given at, at, the, at its very foundation. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. This is what MacArthur says of Luke. When you read the first four chapters or first four verses of the Gospel of Luke, um, it describes his, his approach to things. He's a doctor. So expect him to expect him to approach things differently than Peter and John, who were fishermen. John MacArthur says that Luke was a careful researcher 
and an accurate historian displaying an intimate knowledge of Roman laws and customs as well as the geography of Palestine, Asia Minor, and Italy. Luke knew some things. He had been to school and he knew how to research and apparently that's what he did. This book was most likely written by this doctor somewhere around 60 to 62 AD. Pastor, how, how, why would you say that? Because when you come to the end of the book, this, this, is, this is notable. When you come to the end of the book of Acts, Paul's sitting in jail in his first Roman imprisonment. There's no, he's waiting for trial. Uh, he has, he's uh, um, not, uh, he's not we're, we're not told what the verdict is of the trial. Nothing is said of his execution or his release to be imprisoned later. He's just sitting in jail. Also, nothing is said of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. You remember, you remember what year Jerusalem was destroyed? 70 AD. Do you think that had Jerusalem been destroyed, do you think that might have come up in the book of Acts? So much of the book of Acts is in and around Jerusalem if it had been leveled by the Romans and the temple destroyed, that probably would have come up in the book of Acts, but it doesn't. So the point, the, the, the conclusion that a lot of people reach is that Paul was still alive when the book was concluded. Jerusalem was still standing. Many of the apostles were still living. Somewhere around 60 to 62 AD seems to be when this book was written. You have half of the book dedicated to Paul's story, over half of the book, dedicated to Paul's story. If he had been martyred already, it would have been in this book. So you have Luke, he's the author, somewhere written before the destruction of Jerusalem. That's the setting of the book. You're reading a book that has been written by an educated man who does his homework when it comes to research. Read Luke 1, 1 through 4. We'll not take the time to do that tonight, but read the first four verses of Luke and look at what he goes to, the links that he goes to in his writing. He does his homework. Keep in mind he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but he's a good author. He makes, for, uh, he makes good copy here. That's the setting of the book. The second thing is the scope of the book. What are we going to see as we make our way through the book of Acts? The scope. This involves its outline and its content. I'll go through this kind of quickly. Chapters 1 through 7, it talks about the ministry in Jerusalem. Do you remember what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8? You're going to be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. Remember that? Chapters 1 through heaven, uh, 1 through 7 rather, you primarily have the ministry in Jerusalem. Um, and chapters, uh, chapter 7 ends, by the way, you know, with the stoning of Stephen. Then chapters 8 through 12, you have the ministry in Judea and Samaria. Do you remember the man Philip, the evangelist Philip? We'll get to his story. That's a fantastic story. In, in chapters 8 through 12, you have the ministry of Philip, the conversion of Saul, who's going to be sent to the Gentiles, the preaching of Peter, who is still in the foreground of the book. And then he's preaching in chapter, you see Peter in chapter 2, and in chapter 10, you see him preaching um, and Peter's at the forefront, chapters seven or chapters eight through twelve. The first seven chapters, the ministry in Jerusalem. 
The next several chapters from chapter 8 to 12, you have the ministry in Judea and Samaria. And then chapters 13 through 28, you have the ministry to the uttermost parts of the earth. Peter fades into the background, still alive, but he fades into the background. And Saul is renamed Paul as the apostle. And then his, his ministry kind of takes over. And in those last chapters, starting at verse 13, you have the missionary journeys of Paul. Where he's going and he's planting churches and preaching the gospel. In fact, the gospel is preached and received by Gentiles. So much so that the people from Jerusalem, they say, we better go check out what's going on with those Gentiles. And they go over there and you know what they find out? They got saved the same way the Jews in Jerusalem did. And they come back and they give a wonderful report on what God is doing outside of the Jewish community. He's saving Gentiles. I'm glad because I'm Scotch-Irish. I'm not Jewish at all. So I'm glad Gentiles are allowed to be brought into the family of God. And, and he does that. You see that in here. Luke and Acts, if, if we were to do this, Luke and Acts can be seen as two volumes of, of one big work. And I know they're separated uh, by the Gospel of John, but you can see these as two volumes of one work. There's some commonalities here in Luke and in Acts. For example, the subject of both books is really Jesus Christ. We use names like Peter and Philip and John and Paul in the book of Acts, but they're preaching Jesus Christ. The primary time you see Philip, he's sharing with an Ethiopian government official, Jesus Christ. Paul proclaims the gospel unapologetically. In Luke, it's the same way. So Luke and Acts have the same subject. It's Jesus. They rely on the same sources that is the eyewitness accounts and ministers of Jesus. Luke uses the same, he uses the same methods in his research. He traces the course of all things. He said in Luke chapter 1, he's writing these things in order. He's chronological in his thinking. He's just, he's that kind of thinker. And they both have the same purpose. He wrote Luke and he wrote Acts to this man named Theophilus. And the purpose that he had was to, was to communicate the truthfulness of everything about Jesus. That was his purpose in both books. The book has four highlights. Let's run through them kind of quickly. This is the overview of the book of Acts. Look at verse number 1. We, we're in verse, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. So one of the highlights of this book, first of all, is the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's the ministry of Christ. Both of his works are about the ministry of Jesus. The gospel records what Jesus did while he was here on earth. The book of Acts, and it says, the first letter I wrote is what Jesus began both to do and teach. It's about Jesus' ministry on earth. The coming of God in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, culminated in his ascension back to heaven. But Luke says this, that was just the beginning of this. I, I'm writing to you about what Jesus began to do. I wrote you about that while he was here on earth, but all of that, his earthly ministry, and then he goes back to heaven, that was just the beginning. Now, he says to Theophilus, let's talk about the continuation of the work of Christ. Because he's not done. He's still at work. 
That's what the book of Acts is about. Luke is about the beginning of everything Jesus began to do and teach. Acts is about the, the continuation of that. Said another way, Acts picks up where Luke left off. Luke is Jesus' earthly ministry. Acts tells us what he does uh, afterwards. Would, would you, if you want to turn there, you can. I didn't put it up on the screen. But you need to note some of the last words of Christ in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 24, verses 46 through 48, these are the last words of Christ that Luke's Gospel records. Here's what he says. Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day, and here it comes, verse 47, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations. Everything about Jesus' ministry was located in the, in the nation of Israel. He was up in Galilee or he was down in Judea, but everything about him was confined there. But at the last, Jesus said, his, his gospel, repentance, the remission of sins, these things ought to be preached in all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And notice what verse 48 says. And ye are witnesses of these things. How does the book of Acts open up in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8? You're going to be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Acts picks up at the very beginning where Luke concluded. Jesus leaves saying, I want you to be, I want you to be uh, witnesses for me. Take the gospel to all nations. Preach the repentance of sin to all nations. Acts opens up with that very same thing. What I'm, what I'm wanting you to see here is the ministry of Christ is one of the things that's highlighted in the book of Acts. The second thing that's highlighted in this book is the coming of the Holy Spirit. John 14 and John 16, Jesus still on earth told his disciples, the Spirit is coming, the Comforter is coming. When I go back to heaven, I'm going to send the Comforter to you. Acts chapter 1, verse number 8. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. Acts chapter 2, verse number 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Where the Gospels left off, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. Acts picks that up. Why? Because Jesus began to do these things and teach these things. Acts is the continuation of them. You have the ministry of Christ that's highlighted in the book. You have the coming of the Holy Spirit that is, that is mentioned and highlighted in this book. And it comes, here's the thing, it comes almost immediately in the, in the book of Acts. The coming of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of believers, the filling of the Spirit, all of those things happen almost immediately in the second chapter of a 26 or 28 chapter book. Right away the Holy Spirit shows up. The Comforter came. Just like Jesus had promised. And the results were astounding. Acts chapter 2 and verse, uh, verses 1 through 4 tell you about the coming of the Holy Spirit and the empowering of the church. And Acts chapter 2 verse number 41 says, They that gladly received his word were baptized. The same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. The coming of the Holy Spirit was a dramatic impact on the local church. 
And when he came in Acts chapter 2, there was a new there was a new aspect of the Holy Spirit that was never seen before in the entire Bible. Something happened on the day of Pentecost that hadn't happened all the way back to the very first mention of the Spirit in Genesis chapter 1. That was the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Nobody outside of the Lord Jesus Christ was permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit up to this point. The Holy Spirit would come and he'd go. The Holy Spirit come on this man or come on this woman for a, a dramatic, often dramatic event. The, the, spirit, the, the scriptures will say something like this. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he fill in the blank. But then when he was done, the Holy Spirit would depart. Didn't happen anymore after Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit came and stayed in the believers. So now when a person gets saved, they are permanently indwelt by this Holy Spirit, this comforter that was come, that was promised, and, and then, then he came. And throughout the rest of the book after Acts chapter 2, you see him present and in his people. For example, in chapter 4 and verse number 8, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and he stands before these religious leaders and gives an incredible defense of the gospel. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 29, it's the Holy Spirit that leads Philip to leave Samaria and go to the middle of a desert to talk to this Ethiopian. In Acts chapter 10 and chapter 11, you see the will of God being revealed through the Holy Spirit. In chapter 16, verses 6 and 7, he is directing Paul to the place that he wants him to go to preach the gospel. So the Holy Spirit is mentioned in this book of Acts 50 plus times. He's a highlight here. Not just the ministry of Christ, but the coming of the Holy Spirit. There is, and, and this is important, there is no doctrinal teaching in the book of Acts relating to the Holy Spirit. There's no doctrinal teaching relating to the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. What you have here are practical illustrations of the outpouring of the Spirit and the impact that he has. If you want doctrine pertaining to the Holy Spirit, you need to move outside the book of Acts because oftentimes his work in the book of Acts is not the same way he's working today. We'll talk about that in the weeks ahead. So you have the ministry of Christ highlighted in the book of Acts. Also the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then another thing that's highlighted in this book is the attack of Satan. The attack of the devil. You see him go to work. He's lurking in the background. He's tempting believers to sin. He's enabling false teachers. He's prompting kings and emperors not only to persecute Christians but to kill them in mass slaughter. You have the attacks of Satan. Turn to Acts chapter 5 and verse number 1. This is, a, this is a popular illustration of that, but you can see how it's demonstrated. In Acts chapter 5, you have the story uh, of this couple, this conspiring couple, uh, and their names are Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira um, wanted the recognition of people. They saw what other Christians were doing, other people were selling things and they'd bring the offering 
and people were praising the Lord that they uh, Barnabas sold this piece of land and the Bible says he took that money from that piece of property he brought it and he laid it at the apostles feet he he gave it as an offering to the church and people were praising the Lord for all of that Ananias and Sapphira it wasn't so much that they wanted to give to God they just wanted people pat them on the back for doing so so they worked it out in their heart to sell a piece of property and they decided they decided they were only going to give part of the funds, part of the proceeds from that sale. They were only going to give part of it to the church. Now, was that wrong for them to do? Absolutely not. What they gave from that sale of property was between them and the Lord. Maybe they sold that property and all they wanted to do was tithe on it. That's what they felt God led them to do. That's fine. But what they did was brought that money to the church and they made it, they made it sound like and look like they were giving all of the proceeds to the church. Now look what Paul says, or look rather what Peter and the others say here in verse number 3. Ananias comes, puts his money in there. Look what he says to him. Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? I, I was teaching the teenagers this morning. We're teaching, uh, we're going through the armor of God. And I, I said, for the Christian soldier, one of the things that you have to remember as a Christian soldier is you are in a battle. Don't, don't forget this. Do you remember our study in Acts, or, or in Ephesians, rather, when we came to that? One of the things I challenged you with was, church, don't forget you're in, a, you're in a war. You are a battle in a spiritual war. You're a soldier in that war. And if you forget you're in it, you are so vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. And Ananias and his wife apparently forgot that they were in a spiritual battle. And this thing that came up... It wasn't just their idea. It was Satan in the background. He lurks in the background and he works to destroy people. And you know what happens in Acts chapter number 5. Ananias doesn't repent and God strikes him dead. And he drops dead right there in the church service. There are people present like there are here tonight. There are people present. This guy drops dead. I can just picture Peter standing, probably not behind a pulpit on an elevated platform, but probably in front of a people, people who could hear. And he says, why, why have you allowed Satan to convince you to lie to the Holy Ghost? And just like that, Ananias is dead because he doesn't have a repentant heart. And sometime later, his, wife's come, his wife comes in. She's looking for her husband. Same thing. Same result. Peter says this, the same persons that carried out your husband's body, they're going to carry you out of here. She drops dead just like that. You know why? Because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And that's what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. The enemy got them. One of the things that's highlighted through this book is the attacks of Satan. Look at chapter 13, verse number, uh, verse number 9. Saul's being followed by this sorcerer. His name is Elias, or, or Elimus, rather. And in verse number 9 says, Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him, Elimus the sorcerer, and said, O full of all subtlety and mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt, not, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord. Can you imagine addressing someone like that today? You'll end up in court. But he calls him a child of the devil. 
It's the enemy. You'll see through this book the attacks of Satan. Wherever and whenever the gospel is being advanced, Satan is going to resist. I told you this morning, that's one of the reasons I think Burhanu and his family, I think they were just under attack these last four to six weeks. Burhanu, his wife, his son, and his daughter all have stays in the hospital in six weeks. Normally healthy people. You see the attacks of Satan highlighted here. There are three supernatural beings at work in, in the book of Acts. You see the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the Holy Spirit. And you also see Satan. They're at work throughout the book. The fourth and final highlight of the book is the work of missions. Acts is a wonderful book uh, when it comes to global evangelization and the topic of worldwide missions. Acts is a wonderful book to go to. Luke chapter 24 ends by Jesus saying you need to take the repentance and the remissions of sins and preach that in all nations. You're witnesses of these things. Acts 1.8 opens up saying tell the world about me in, uh, in the uttermost parts of the earth. Missions is highlighted. Not with Peter, not with John. They're stuck in Jerusalem. Paul's not. You know throughout this book, uh, the, 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 the book of Acts shows how, how the gospel starts there in Jerusalem and then it begins to spread like wildfire as they're persecuted. The Bible says that these believers went everywhere preaching the gospel. It's the work of missions going to the world. Started there in Jerusalem, started with the crucifixion and burial and resurrection of Jesus. That is the gospel. But then it spreads to the, to the Gentile world. You have that idea of the, the spread of missionary work and gospel, the gospel spread. You have that idea portrayed in a parable in Matthew chapter 22, the first 10 verses. It's the parable of the wedding feast. Do you remember this? You remember this parable? There's going to be this great wedding, and it, it, it gives us prophetically, it gives us what's going to happen later in the book of Acts. The first guests are called to the wedding by the servants. And the word is plural there, the servants. The first wedding guests are invited by a number of servants. Well, the Jews were invited by John the Baptist, by Jesus himself, and by the apostles. There were a number of people calling the Jews in Jerusalem to follow Christ. And what happened? The Jews rejected them. In Matthew chapter 22, the first wedding guests that were invited, they didn't come. So then there went out a second call with the assurance that all things are now ready. It's, we're ready for this to happen. That's the equivalent of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and the days following. Once more to the Jews and a Jewish nation and thankfully there was, there was a good response there. The gospel rule is this, to the Jew first. The gospel was presented first to the Jewish people. And so Jesus and John and his disciples, uh, and, and then the early days of Acts, they're all presenting the gospel to the Jew first. In the parable back in, back in Matthew 22, Jesus predicted what the people would do to those servants that brought that second offer, the apostles in Acts. Jesus predicted what they would do. He said in Matthew chapter 22, he said they're going to ignore the invitation. 
They're going to ignore the message. They're going to treat the messengers spitefully. And ultimately, this is all back in Matthew 22, ultimately he's going to kill those messengers. That's exactly what happens in the book of Acts. We know that all of the apostles, except Judas, Judas who committed suicide, and John, who died an old man, all the rest of them, including the apostle Paul, all of them were martyred. That's exactly what happened. Jesus said to that second group that's going to make the invitation, the apostles after his ascension, the apostles inviting people to come, Jesus said the message is going to be rejected. They're going to mistreat them. Ultimately, they're going to kill those, those, those messengers. That's exactly what happened. The Lord then said, that the Lord of that place would come and he would burn that city to the ground. The city in which those people lived would be destroyed. Enter General Titus in the Roman army in the year 70 AD who comes and destroys the city of Jerusalem. Jesus was telling us about the book of Acts all the way back in Matthew chapter number 22. Once that second offer was rejected, the servants were then told, you remember this? Go out into the highways and invite other guests. And that's exactly what happened. The apostles scattered. They went, the disciples went out through Asia Minor and began inviting other people. And thankfully they did that so Gentiles like you and me could be saved. That's what you see. Matthew 22 verses 1 through 10 is a very compact description of what happens in the book of Acts. It's the missionary work. The gospel begins in Jerusalem because it had to go to the Jew first, but the book of Acts ends with Paul sitting in a Roman prison because eventually the gospel was going to go to the whole world. Isaiah told us that all the way back in his book when he said, do you remember, I love this verse, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. It wasn't just the Jews walking in darkness. It was the whole world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The book of Acts, one of the highlights is the missionary work that goes on around the world. The Bible preaching, teaching, and discipleship. So you have the setting, you have the scope, where the book was written, when it was written, by whom it was written. Then you have the scope, what you're going to find in it. And the last thing is the benefit or the, excuse me, the, the significance. And that significance is the benefit and the application of this book. There are things we can learn from the book of Acts. Not everything in Acts is for you. Not everything is for me. Snake handling, it's not a wise thing today. I'd stay away from that if I were you. Uh, when, when the viper comes out and it bites, uh, it bites Paul's hand, he shakes it off in the fire. Remember that? And everybody, whoa, that guy must be a god. I'd stay away from him. I wouldn't test that theory. There's a lot of people around here testing that theory, and they're failing at it. We have, a, we have had a father and son in our state. The father pastored the church, got bit by a copperhead. He died. Son took over, got bit by a copperhead and rattlesnake. He died. It's not a good pattern to follow. Not everything in the book of Acts is for you and me. But there are some things we can learn. So what's the significance to us? I think the key, the key verse for the entire book is Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. It sets up everything God wants to do for the rest of the book. And that's that you and I are to be 
you and I are to be witnesses. Let, let me say this as we enter this study. This is not going to be a doctrinal study like we're looking at on Sunday mornings with the attributes of God. This is a more practical study. The book of Acts is far more practical than it is doctrinal. There's instruction here both for the, the local church collectively and there's instruction in the book for the individual believer. So what's its benefit and, ex and application? What do we do? What do we learn from the book of Acts that we can use? Let's just run down these things and then we're done. The first thing is this, Christian. When you, want, when you come into the book of Acts and you begin your learning, here's the first thing. Exercise a full reliance on the Holy Spirit. Exercise a full reliance on the Holy Spirit. Any believer that is interested today in being part of God's plan must be a spirit-filled believer because you want to be directed by the Holy Spirit. You want to be part of God's plan to reach the world? You want to know God's will? Then be filled with His Spirit. God is working in lives and in churches today through the Holy Spirit. Exercise a full reliance on Him. Any individual believer interested in being part of God's plan needs to be filled with the Spirit. Any local church that's interested in cooperating with what Christ wants to do in the whole world needs to come back to this truth. The importance of the filling and empowering of the Holy Spirit for the church's work. It's not our ingenuity. It's not our craftiness. It's not our technology. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord, the effective church will be a spirit-filled and spirit-led church. Amen. Technology and gimmicks, smoke machines, whatever you want to plug in there, those are terrible substitutes for the filling of the Holy Spirit. It, here's the truth, church. It's not my job as your pastor to create an atmosphere in the church. It's not my job to do that. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And I'm not going to supplant him in that. The Holy Spirit is the one to create the atmosphere here. I'm not going to sit down. I, I heard a preacher say this one time. And I was a young man in the ministry. And it just didn't set right with me. But this is what the preacher said. Mark, at any time I want to, I can make this congregation cry. A pastor said that. At any time I want to, I can make our congregation cry. Well, that's not my responsibility to make you cry. If you're shedding tears, let the Holy Spirit be the one bringing those tears. Amen. They might be tears of conviction. They might be tears of, of thanksgiving. But it's not my job to make you cry. And nothing I do or say is gonna, it has the motive of making you cry. It's the Holy Spirit. Exercise a full reliance on the Holy Spirit. Second thing, what's the application for the believer in the book of Acts? What can we learn? Practice faithful responsibility in the work of the ministry. This church's growth just exploded. 3,000 one day, 4,000 another day in, in, in chapter number 4. Acts outlines the specific terms for pastoral care that was effective in that church. There is no way 10 or 12 apostles were going to manage over 10,000 people in that church. 
the church members had to get involved. Early on, the, the, effectiveness, uh, the effectiveness of the ministry was, was seen, but then persecution started coming, and the apostles were taken away. And church members started getting involved, and they started taking on the work of the ministry. Practice faithful responsibility in the work of the ministry. Church, this is the truth. God did not put you in this ministry, in Faith Baptist Church. He did not put you here to sit. He brought you to this church. He moved you to this area. He led you to Faith Baptist Church in order for you to minister to others. Now pick a, pick a spot. Maybe your ministry is singing. Maybe your ministry is sewing. Maybe your ministry is repairing. Maybe your ministry is discipling. Maybe your ministry is encouraging. But whatever reason God has put you for at Faith Baptist Church, fulfill it. Do it. Acts chapter 6, men were called to serve as deacons. Acts chapter 12, people met together in a special prayer meeting. It wasn't a church service, it was a prayer meeting. They got together and prayed. Acts chapter 18 and verse number 19, you have the hospitality of Aquila and Priscilla how they took people in. You have the discipleship ministry of that same couple. Maybe that's what God has put you in Faith Baptist Church for. Maybe God has put you, some of you older married couples here, to be an encouragement to young married couples. Maybe God has put you in this church to put your arm around church members who are suffering and struggling and they need someone to walk, behind, walk beside them because two walking together are better than one. Get involved in the church God's brought you to. Sitting in a chair is not a spiritual gift. It's just not. God gave every believer at, one, at least one spiritual gift when he saved you. What is that gift and what are you doing with it? Take that responsibility. Exercise a full reliance on the Holy Spirit. Practice faithful responsibility in the work of the ministry. What else do I take away from the book of Acts? Keep a proper remembrance of the Bible's heroes. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Acts is a snapshot of the early church. And sometimes we glorify people that don't need glorification. May I remind you of some of the things that you see in the book of Acts in the first century church? Everybody says, we need to get back to the first century church. Just be remindful or be mindful of some things that we find there. You know what you find in the book of Acts? Inside the church, hypocrisy, jealousy, envy, heresy, pride, racism, carnality, worldliness. That's what you find inside the first century church. We find those same things here in the 21st century church. So there's some things in the first century church we don't need to get back to, we need to improve upon. When you're tempted to put people like Peter and Paul and John on spiritual pedestals, don't. They're men. They were ordinary men who had an intimate relationship 
with an extraordinary Savior. That was the key. It wasn't Peter. It wasn't Paul. It wasn't Philip. It wasn't John. It was the Savior in them. So look at Peter. Acts chapter 2. There's Peter out there. Peter, the guy who was denying Christ just two months earlier, swearing to prove he didn't know Jesus, Peter is on the day of Pentecost and he's preaching the gospel and he doesn't care who hears him preaching and 3,000 people are saved. And you look at Peter and you say, man, he is an incredible man. And then you come to, first, or you come to Acts chapter number 10 and you find out that he's got a little bit of racism to him. The, the glory gets knocked off a little bit when he's at Simon the Tanner's house and you find out he's, he's got some bigotry that he needs to work on. There's Paul. Paul, the man who's knocked off his horse by the great light of Jesus Christ and, and, and wonderfully converted there in Acts chapter number 9. And man, he grows. And people, remember, they looked at him kind of cockeyed, like, I don't know if we want that guy in our church or not. I know what he was doing last week. He was killing us. And Paul just starts growing in the Lord. And you see this tremendous transformation take place in Paul. And you watch grace come through this educated man who had the right to be lifted up in pride with all he knew and all he'd done. And yet grace is growing in him. And then he gets into a tiff with a young man in the ministry named John Mark. And you find out that Paul was a great recipient of grace, but he had a little bit of problem extending grace to people who let him down. Paul's not perfect. Peter's not perfect. And so as we make our way through the book of Acts, keep a proper remembrance of the Bible's heroes. Be careful not to isolate the apostles and there's some unique status of Christian that we can never attain to. Yes, they had gifts that you and I don't have today because we have the word of God. But in their Christian life, they, they struggled like you. They struggled like me. But we serve the same God. We've both been saved by the same Savior and we are indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. That's where the secret is. It's not in their uniqueness. It's in their surrender. God is still big. Jesus is still real. And the Holy Spirit still works. I've mentioned to you before this verse in 2 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. God's not looking for a perfect heart. That's just talking about a heart that's surrendered. God wants to do in you and through you like he worked through Peter and Paul. He wants to do that in the 21st century just like he did in the 1st century. So welcome to the book of Acts. As we make our way through it, let's learn from it. Let's learn what God, what God has here for us. But let's not, let's not impose things on it that aren't there. Let's not, let's not think of Paul as a super Christian. I could never do what Paul did. I could never preach like Paul did. I could never stand and be bold like Peter was in Acts chapter 4. I can't do those things. We're going to make our way through this book. It'll be in a Bible study slash sermon format. Sometimes teaching, sometimes preaching. But it's to benefit us. Pastor, why the book of Acts? Why study the book of Acts? 
Let me close tonight with five reasons we ought to study this, and I'm not commenting on these, but I would like to read them to you. The first one is because the book of Acts reminds us that we are intended to function in the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll keep coming back to that. It reveals the cause of today's lack of power in churches. We have abandoned biblical principles. It assures us that even in tribulation, God directs and watches over his faithful servants. They faced some pretty harsh things, but God was still working for them. It calls us, the book of Acts calls us to a greater obedience and boldness in declaring the truth of God's word. We see that boldness demonstrated again and again. <clears throat> and then finally, it provides examples of first century believers to show what God accomplishes through lives that are yielded to him. This is why we're going to study the book of Acts. It's, it's, it's for these reasons. Acts is a book of transition. It moves us from that period of time where we didn't have the completed word of God to today where we do. So not everything in Acts is up for your experience. But there's a lot here for us to learn. There's a lot to be encouraged in. There's a lot to be challenged by. Let's approach this book as, okay, God, what is it that you want me to learn? And was it, what is it you want me to change in my life as a result? One of the greatest things, and we're going to hammer this, one of the greatest things has to do with your relationship to the Holy Spirit. It is too easy for us to operate in the flesh. It's too easy for us to do that. We have to learn to be yielded to and to choose to be filled with the Holy Spirit every day. His work is to build Christ into you. Allow him to do that. This is going to be a good study. It'll take us a while to get through the book. We don't have to be in a hurry. We're not on anybody's timeline. The only thing we're working toward is the return of Jesus Christ. So if we don't finish the book, you can learn what the rest of the book you need to. If Jesus comes back before we finish the book of Acts, you can learn the about the rest of it by talking to Peter, Paul, John, and Philip. All right? How will that work out? Let's stand together. Father, we're glad to be in your house. We're thankful for this book. It reminds us what you desire to do in people who fully surrender to you. So, Lord, help us as we go through this study together. Help us to be surrendered to the Holy Spirit. Help us to, make, to, to become better at surrendering. I know, God, in me, there's a resistance sometimes. There are times when I think I'm enough. There are times when I think that my knowledge or my skill or my wisdom is sufficient. But the truth is, God, when I'm right before you, I'll admit none of those things are sufficient. You are my sufficiency, Jesus. May the Holy Spirit be pleased to work in every one of us and use us however he sees fit and wherever he sees fit for the glory of God and for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in your name. Amen. God bless you, church. It's good to see you tonight. Lord willing, we'll gather again on Wednesday evening, all right?